In Christian spirituality, this is a generalization, in Christian spirituality, there are two kind of driving images that we find in Scripture. They are called terminal images, terminal images, that's one, and instrumental images, instrumental images. So terminal images uh, are the goals of spirituality. So for example, in the Old Testament, a terminal image might be the promised land, right? So the promised land represents this place where the Israelites want to get to in the Exodus, and then in the prophets when they're in exile, they want to get back to it. And of course, the promised land represents more than just a strip of dirt in the Palestine area. The promised land represents rest and peace and being with God and being in community. The promised land represents the terminal image of shalom, right? In the New Testament, the coming of the kingdom of God is a terminal image. It is what we are looking forward to. When God will return, uh, Jesus will return and bring his kingdom. He will judge the wicked and bring, uh, raise the dead and bring new life. That is what we're looking forward to. It's a terminal image. It is a goal. Now, instrumental images are about the process of getting to the terminal images. It's about the journey. So, for example, in the scriptures, the way, the road, the journey, traveling, these are instrumental images in the Old Testament narratives, in the prophets, in, uh, in the Psalms, in, in the Gospels. And even in Paul's writing, he uses this, the way, like kind of language. It's the journey experience, the instrumental images that tell us what God is like in certain circumstances. It's along the journey that we get to see how God actually acts in people's lives and in our lives. Like you can read about God in a book and you could open up a book of theology that says things like, well, God is omniscient and God is, you know, uh, all-powerful and God uh, is omnipresent. And wow, that's great. I can know a lot about God in my head. But where do you really know God? It's when, it's when you see Him in narrative. It's when you see Him in story. And it's when you experience Him in your life. And those are the instrumental images of spirituality. Last week, James Matichuk preached on Matthew 8, 18-27. And we saw how Jesus calls us to follow Him, instrumental image, and that following Him isn't necessarily easy. Right? He asked the disciples to get into a boat, which is always a perilous thing. Take it from me, an ex-coastie. You get into a boat, and you don't know exactly where you'll end up. I mean, you have a plan, but you don't know how long it'll necessarily take to get there, or what the seas will be like. There's a lot of variables when you get into a boat. So the disciples actually show some faith in Jesus just by getting into a boat with him. They leave their families behind, and they go on a journey. And on this journey, a massive storm comes up upon them. Such a fierce storm that even... Seasoned fishermen like Peter get freaked out. They wake up Jesus. Save us! And they fear for their lives. Now, Jesus, of course, wakes up and he rebukes them. He calls them a name. He calls them little faiths, literally in Greek. You little faiths. And then what does he do? He rebukes the storm with what? With a word. That's a theme that we're seeing here in Matthew 8. With the word, he heals. With the word, he casts out demons. With the word, he can calm a storm. Now, of course, he rebukes them for their lack of faith, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that Jesus is the one who can calm storms. When you ask Jesus, he rescues. 
He, he doesn't require a whole lot of faith. He requires an itty-bitty mustard seed of faith. He wants us to grow out of mustard seed faith infancy. He wants us to have more and more faith. But it doesn't take anything to get started. Just a tiny little bit and Jesus rescues. Now, storms, whether you're in a literal storm in the sea or whether your life is in a storm of chaos because of circumstances, storms, no matter what kind they are, they have a way of making you lose focus of where you're going and concentrating on the storm, don't they? I mean, when you're in a storm, it's messed up. In 1996, I was dating Corey. I was in the Coast Guard and stationed in Seattle, Washington, where Corey lived in in Redmond. And uh, so we were dating, and then our ship got underway, and we went to San Diego for six weeks to train with the Navy. And after that six weeks, we got underway. We're heading up the coast of California. And of course, my terminal image, I could not wait to get back to Seattle so I could see my, my sweetheart, right? Well, as soon as we're crossing in from the California to Oregon border, a few hundred miles offshore, the sky started to turn black in the middle of the afternoon, in late summer. And, and, and the waves started to come in. The swells were getting bigger and bigger. And for two and a half days, we were pounded by 40-foot swells with five to six-foot wind waves on top of that. So you're seeing walls of 45 feet of water banging into you. And you, everyone's just getting bruised and beaten up. And it's all you can do to stay upright and make sure the engines keep working and make sure the deck is secure. I wasn't thinking about Seattle anymore. I was just thinking about one step in front of the That's what storms do to us. You easily forget where it is you're going. And I say all of this because as we engage in the text tonight, we have just come out of the storm of Matthew 8, um, 17 through 27, or 18 through 27, that's come right before our story. But don't forget, even though that part of the story is about a storm, Jesus is taking his disciples somewhere. They are actually on their way someplace else. And he was actually taking them someplace where they would probably never have gone on their own. So would you stand as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. Now, when he came to the other side, of the, into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. And the demons began to beg him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down a steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went into the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him, they implored him to leave their region. Lord Jesus, uh, (laughs) this is a weird story. Um, And I pray that you would by your spirit help us to receive it in our hearts that you would teach us what it is you're trying to communicate through this lord amen you may be seated well 
I mentioned in, in the prayer, you know, it's kind of a weird story, right? It's also a story that appears in all three synoptic gospels, in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, it's there. And in every one of those, it follows the storm sequence, and they get to the other side, and there's something going on with Jesus meeting people that have demons. The details of the story are different in each of the gospel accounts, uh, which makes a lot of sense since each of the evangelists were writing from their own perspective to their own audience in their own style. Now, in this account, in Matthew's account, Jesus and his disciples land on the shore of the Gadarenes, which is one of the small villages in a greater region known as the Decapolis, right? Deca, Greek for ten, polis, Greek for city. So the, the region of the ten cities, all right? And the most important thing that we need to know about where this took place in the Decapolis is that it was a Gentile territory. It was a place where observant Jews wouldn't go, or at least they wouldn't stay very, very often or, or very much. We also read, in, as we keep going on the story, that there is a herd of pigs there. So not only are there Gentiles there, but they're pig herders, which of course, if you know about Jewish tradition, you don't eat pigs or have anything to do with swine, right? So this is a place where these disciples, if they're observant Jews, would never go on their own. They wouldn't want to go there on purpose, and for some reason, Jesus takes them there. To make matters even more severe, we're introduced to two men who the scriptures tell us are demonized and they lived among the tombs. Strange. Did you notice when Jenny just read from Isaiah 65, 1-5, one of the things that God was judging Israel for was worshipping false gods in tombs and eating pig's flesh. Interesting. Alright. This scene is all kinds of messed up. Like... They're going to swine land, Gentile swine land, and what are they doing there? Gentile territory, unclean. Pigs, unclean. Men who live in tombs, unclean. Men who are demonized, very, very, very unclean. So far in this chapter, we've seen Jesus deal with lepers and Gentile soldiers and sick women and lukewarm disciples. But this story is the king of unclean. So these demonized men come out of the tombs and they meet Jesus. Like they run out. And, and they're so violent that people couldn't even use that part of the road. In fact, in Mark's gospel, he talks about the demonized man uh, having superhuman strength so that sometimes the villagers would be able to chain him up and he would break the chains. Right? Now, can we just pause for a moment and have a, just have an honest just conversation? This is a weird story, isn't it? Like, this is very strange. You know, not that healing lepers is so normal, or healing a centurion slave over long distance happens every day. I mean, it's a marvelous story. But, you know, leprosy, we can kind of get our heads around that one. You know, there's medical treatments for that. And, and even uh, secular television shows have the power of prayer and, and, you know, long distance healing and things like that. And that's kind of, you can see that stuff on Oprah. But, but demon possession. Come on. What, what's going on here? What do we do as... 21st century Bellinghamsters with a story like this? How do you read this and how has it become devotional for our lives? How, how does God speak to us through a story like this? Well, 
Let me propose four steps in approaching a story like this, okay? One is I think each one of us is in a different spot with what we think about this type of story. And we need to be honest about where we're really at, okay? So we read this. Some of you have never experienced a demon. You've never experienced a person who has been possessed or under the influence of a demon, at least not that you know of. And the whole idea might seem primitive. It might seem... um, just outside your box of reality. And we need to acknowledge that in an age of information and scientific research, uh, maybe we are influenced into relegating the existence of demons as outdated. All right? Um, certainly psychology and neuroscience can show that many behaviors are the result of a combination of brain chemistry and nurture and experience. Right, And so we, we can rationalize many of these things away. Now, maybe you've had experiences with the demonic, but you don't know what to do with them. You don't know how to categorize them. And you fear that people might think you're crazy if you share them, right? even in church. So that might be another category you're coming from. Or maybe you come from a background where demons were openly talked about and where the leader of your church may have talked about demons and Satan more than Jesus and it kind of freaks you out. And maybe in youth group you had to read Frank Peretti books like This Present Darkness over and over again in Sunday school. So you're about, you know, you, you believe in it all, but it's just kind of like chill out a little bit. Alright, so my point is, step number one, realize and, and acknowledge as you approach the text, where are you really at with this? Now, two, we need to admit that the Bible takes the existence of demons seriously. What are demons? Most likely they're fallen angels. Revelation implies that some of the angels of God's court at some point rebelled and now they serve the Satan, which means the accuser. It doesn't really even have a proper name. It's just the Satan, the accuser, right? So if angels are God's ministering spirits and his messengers, then demons are the Satan's ministering spirits and messengers. And and they like to do things like cause you and I harm. But most of all, what they like to do to us is cause us to doubt God's love for us. They like to confuse us. Demons, uh, we believe, are very old. They're not at all all all-knowing like God. They are not God. Uh, But because they've been around so long, have been around so many types of people and cultures and can probably travel really easily. (laughs) They know a lot of stuff. And sometimes it can even seem that they can tell the future. St. Athanasius wrote in his life of St. Anthony, and he speaks of demons exhibiting vast knowledge merely because they've been around for so long. So, for example, when a medium or a psychic uh, is seeking the occult, oftentimes it's believed from a Christian perspective that a demon might be informing that decision. And so, actually, I think that psychics, some of them are actually real. Which is all the more reason I don't think you should go to them. Because they're seeking uh, demonic influence. And so when we go to mediums and spiritualists and, uh, and psychics and palm readers, that's tied up with the demonic and with the occult. And that's why the Bible is so adamant that we not go down that route. In the Old Testament scriptures, there's no one word for demon, but the language used is that of unclean spirits or evil spirits or lying spirits, etc., etc. So it uses a descriptor on them. And for, So for an example, King Saul, who was anointed by God in the beginning of his reign, he received the Holy Spirit of God, but when he betrayed God and didn't obey, the Holy Spirit withdrew from him. And it says that an evil spirit filled King Saul and that he raved like a lunatic in his, in his, 
in his palace. And that's when he started to try and kill King David. So we see an example in the Old Testament of some type of evil spirit uh, filling King Saul. In the New Testament, we see Jesus casting out demons as normal as his teaching and healings. It's like it's just right there. He does those things, it seems, in uh, trifecta all the time through his ministry. So if we take Jesus seriously then we have to take seriously the fact that he took the existence of demons seriously. Now here's the hard part for me and probably for many of you. We don't need to understand. That's a hard pill to swallow. We, you know, there's a lot we don't understand, isn't there? I look about this room and I see some very, very intelligent people. Uh, A lot of education, a lot of probably student loan debt built up in this room. There's a lot that our collective wisdom, we don't understand about the the universe. Uh, There's a lot we don't understand about the human body. Men and women. There's a lot we don't understand about each other. But ladies, I don't deny your existence. Right? I mean, there's just a lot we don't get. But just because you can't explain something doesn't make it uh, false. So, one, we acknowledge what we are bringing to the text. Our own skepticism or our own fear or our own whatever. Okay, and then two, we, we have to acknowledge that the Bible and the God of the Bible and the people of God in the Bible take these things seriously. And three, I think we should recognize that even today in our scientific and technology-driven age, there are many things, many things that we can't explain. Just a few weeks ago, did you guys read in the paper about that couple from Seattle? They had lunch down at a restaurant on Holly Street. Uh, It's just so close to home. The guy was 37. He was my age. There with his wife and they had a baby and there was a young man in the restaurant who was looking funny at them. And when they paid their bill and they went outside, this young man ran after them and punched the baby. And the mom caught the baby. Everything was fine. They went to the hospital. Everything was fine. But the point is that the man, the husband, ran this dude down, tackled him. The cops came and his testimony was, I don't know what happened. I was tormented by demons telling me to punch this baby. Now, could have been a schizophrenic episode, could have been a lot of different things, but it's hard to explain why these types of things happen. To be sure, to be sure, today we know a lot more about mental illness than we did even a hundred years ago. We know that in the 15th century, something like paranoid schizophrenia or dissociative identity disorder may have been diagnosed as demon possession wrongly. On the other hand, even contemporary medical professionals record incidences of unexplainable phenomena in patients' behavior. One of the most interesting fields to me in this is anthropology. Anthropologists study humans of various cultural settings, both in the contemporary world and people of the past. So anthropologists often write... modern-day shamanism in which the shaman invites a spirit to come and invade their their body. And the idea there is that the shaman is saying, okay, I'm going to side with this spirit, and you're going to give me special information and bless my village against these other spirits. Now, from a Christian perspective, you can see just how evil this whole setup is. Because really what these demons are doing is just causing a whole people to... Avoid looking at Jesus as the one true God. They just got, they just got our own little civil war going on. 
Most interesting, I think, to our story is the fact that since 3000 BC, archaeologists and anthropologists agree that the most common bones found at pagan worship sites are what kind of bones? Guess. Chicken bones. We've got to guess over here. Anybody else? Think of our story. Pig bones. By far, pig bones are the number one bone found. I mean, this is cross-cultural at pagan sites, uh, not only in the ancient Near East, but also in Asia. Pig bones. And maybe that's why God is so adamant that his people, who had lived in pagan Egypt for four centuries, maybe that's why he's so adamant that they distanced themselves from pigs, which were connected with idolatry. It's not that pigs are bad animals. I mean, Babe and Charlotte's Web and all that stuff. I mean, they're nice animals. But it has to do with culture. And God trying to separate his people from an idolatrous relationship to one with fidelity in him alone. So don't, don't rip on pigs. They can taste good. Right? But it has to do with, with, with um, these sacrifices. In fact, what Jenny read earlier um, speaks of God condemning the Jews for consuming pig flesh. And again, not because pigs are bad, but because when you make a sacrifice, it's a barbecue. I don't know if you guys thought about that, but when you know, the Jews would sacrifice an animal, it was a communal event. Like you, you cook the animal and then the priest gets some, but then you eat it together. I mean, that's the point. That's why in the Corinthians, when, um, when Paul is getting on them for eating flesh, sacrifice to idols, it's because they actually had a restaurant. Like instead of going to like Deanna's, it might be Deanna's. And it was like to the goddess Deanna. And so when you cook up a meal there and you eat it together, that's your worship of Deanna. Okay? You can still go to Deanna's. I love that place. Really good spicy sausage, but... Uh, The point is, I mean, that's why God is so fierce that they're eating pig flesh. Not because they're eating pig flesh, but because they've sacrificed it to a false god and then are participating uh, through eating it in worship. So, more than you ever wanted to know about swine. Um, So this brings us to the fourth step, I think, in approaching a text like this. We have to lay our skepticism aside and recognize that the Bible takes demons seriously and that even today the demonic is active or at least unexplained. And that could leave us in fear. But the fourth step is to take the Bible equally seriously that Jesus has authority over Satan and his demons. Amen? Alright. So we need not fear if we are associated with Jesus. Through baptism, we are sealed with Jesus by the Holy Spirit. We are identified as being in Christ. Martin Luther, who was uh, often, he writes of being assaulted by uh, demonic influence, he, he etched on his desk, I am baptized. And that was a, a word to him to remind that, you know what, e- even though I'm being bothered, I can't be touched. Because I am, I belong to the Lord. And that is really good news. The Apostle Paul continues this line of thinking in Ephesians, among many of his other letters, but I mentioned Ephesians because we were just there last year. Uh, The Gentiles were so afraid of these evil spirits. And so writing to the Gentile Christians, Paul reminds them that they and we are in Christ. And Christ is raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father. And He is far above every rule and authority and power and dominion. 
and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus has overcome these powers. If we are in Christ, we're with Him. Right? That's good. Woo! Okay. So back to our story. I know that was a little digression, but I thought we had to deal with that because this is a weird story. And what do we do with this type of stuff? Okay. Well, what do demons know in the first place? Actually, they know quite a bit. Jesus, just in the story last week, calmed a storm with a word. In all of the Old Testament scriptures, the only one who has control over the weather like that is Yahweh. It's God himself. Not King David, not any of the messiahs of the Old Testament, only God. So the disciples rightly ask, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, I know you're all there like, I know, I know, it's because Jesus is more than just a guy. But, you know, they're still trying to figure this out, all right? So, relax. So the demons actually have the answer before the disciples do. So Jesus and his crew gets there, they come out of the tombs, raving lunatics, and they say, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of God? Now let's stop here. Even in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' own disciples don't get this far until Matthew 16 when Peter you know, has this confession of faith. Of course, then Peter goes on to deny Jesus three times. It's at the foot of the cross where a Greek or a Roman centurion says, Surely this was the Son of God. So the demons have some serious knowledge here of who Jesus really is. And they recognize his authority. Listen to this. Have you come here to torment us before the time? It was believed that when God returns to his creation, the dead would be raised and the earth would be judged along with Satan and his demons. No one expected it to happen this way. No one expected God to have like a teaser trailer to the big show, to put on flesh and dwell on the earth for about 30-some years, to cast out a few demons, do a few healings, and then be raised from the dead. Nobody saw that one coming. Everyone was expecting when God came, it would just be the big show and it, and it would be over. But think, this is a tangent here, but think how merciful it was that God did it that way. Because he's allowing people more time to come to a knowledge of him and be saved. And I think that's beautiful. And I think I'm a recipient of that, and you are too. Amen. All right. So, what we're seeing is that wherever Jesus' person is, wherever he is in these stories, the kingdom is there. The kingdom is there. When he's confronted with demons, they get their judgment in advance. Uh, There will be a final judgment when he comes back, but during his ministry in the flesh, Jesus did deeds of the kingdom. His healings and his exorcisms are a foretaste of the big show that's coming when all things will be put right. So what we see here is very important, especially in our age, when we think that information can solve all of our problems. What do demons know? They know a lot more than us. Much more than the disciples at this time. But following Jesus is not about what you know as much as it is about what you do with what you know. Or maybe more specifically, what you do with whom you know. Right? 
The demons were standing in the presence of the Son of God and they did not worship. Instead, they insulted Him and they tried to avoid punishment. The disciples did not yet fully understand who He was and yet they left everything to follow Him. Friends, you don't have to know a lot to start following Jesus. You don't have to know a lot to be rescued by Him. You don't have to have a PhD to trust Jesus. You just need a mustard seed of faith to get started on the road. That is such good news. Right? Jesus heals these two men and the demons go into the pigs and the pigs and the demons all run off into the water and are destroyed. Which, by the way, they go into the sea and just the story before, we learn that Jesus has power and authority even over the sea. So when Jesus heals these two men and sets them free, you would think that their community would just be like, Thank you, Jesus! This is amazing! Right? Super cool. Like, these two guys were screwed up. Living in tombs. The other gospels say they're, you know, cotton themselves. and Totally possessed. And now they're free and made whole. You'd think that would be good news. Instead, the community that these guys are from asks Jesus to leave. In their eyes, he has just cost them a bunch of money. Because they're pig herders. And he just, whatever he did, man, it screwed up their whole herd of swine. And they ran off into the ocean. Now, the temptation is for me, and I don't know about for you, but for me it's just like, what fools? It's like, here's Jesus, and they're totally blowing it here. What fools they are. In reality, that's true. But don't be so quick to judge. When Jesus heals... When he breaks into our lives, he turns tables over inside our hearts, he messes things up, he screws with the way you think you see the world. He turns it upside down, man. And it is not pleasant. Because let's face it, we are sometimes stuck in our ways. It's not comfortable. These Gentiles seem more worried about their economics than seeing two of their fellow men healed and made set free, right? It happens all the time. It happens all the time. And I'm guilty of this, so I bring this up just as an example. But think about this. Am I going to go spend $80 on the shirt that was knit by one of you in Bellingham at the farmer's market? Or I could buy a few of those shirts over at, name the store, from probably made by children in some other country, but I don't really want to look at that, so I just buy it cheaper. It happens all the time. And it's not as simple as black and white. I mean, what do you do if you're on the lower economic scale in our community? You can't afford to buy the fancy knit one at the farmer's market. Right? You shop at Walmart. You can't just, you can't just have this black and white division. It's not, it's not easy. And so I can see how these this community would be all up in arms about Jesus screwing up their economy, right? And the question is, what is, what is a human life worth? I mean, how many pigs, how many people need to be saved before it's worth it that the pigs go over the cliff? And what Jesus is showing us here is that every life is precious. Every life is precious. So he leaves. Jesus leaves. And I think this is really cool. He shows grace. In Mark's gospel, what we learn is that the man who was set free asked Jesus, Hey, take me with you. I want to follow you. I want to go on your boat with your crew. I, I want to get out of here. And he says, No. 
Go and be a witness to your community about what the Son of Man has done for you. And I think it's a beautiful thing that Jesus left these two men whose lives would never be the same to be a witness to their community. And by the way, just skipping ahead a few, a few years in, in the history of the church, like, who is the community that turns to the church more wholeheartedly? It's the Gentile community. In the, in the early church, I mean, you've got your first disciples who were Jewish, but then after that, you've got Paul evangelizing all these Gentile regions, and they're coming in groves. And I, and I wonder how much influence, uh, uh, you know, people that have been rescued like this had on their community. So, all right. Well, what about us? We, like the demons, I mean, we just heard now, I'm sorry you didn't know this when you came, but now you're responsible for this information. Jesus is the Son of God. Sorry to do that to you. But the question is, what do we do with that? I mean, the demons knew a lot, but they didn't worship. The demons knew a lot, but they didn't bend the knee, you know? And so now we're guilty, because we know... I'm telling you, sorry, it's my job, I'm a preacher. Jesus is the Son of God. So I want you to consider something. These two men, these men that he rescued, were Gentiles. They were probably demonized because of their idol worship and because they hung in pagan circles and because they were involved in pagan practices. Right? They probably invited this upon themselves. They were not looking for deliverance from Jesus. They didn't put a message in a bottle that said, please come rescue us. But Jesus came anyway. Uninvited, unannounced. Jesus is the Savior who graciously butts into your business. Right? Aren't you glad that He does? It is such good news that He takes the initiative with us, that He doesn't leave us alone. Were any of you looking for Him before He tapped you on the shoulder? Why are you here? I mean, I'm glad you're here. But why are you here really? Like, I know in my own story, I, I wasn't looking for this. I wasn't, lo- you know, I just come out and just say, I'm looking for rescue. You know, I was pretty content in my own screwed up life. But it becomes, it, you know, it's a certain people God puts in your life. It's my faithful grandparents praying for me. It, it, it's... Marital problems and, you know, and my wife saying, hey, I think we should look into a church. I'm like, okay, let's do that. Oh my God, Jesus! You know, and then he, he breaks in. And who knows all the chain of events that's connected. I'm just glad that he doesn't give up, that he takes initiative with us. And then he butts in and he breaks in unannounced and uninvited. And many of you who have followed him a while or even brand new... You may be living a dual life of shame. You may be into something addicting and dark. You may have a side of yourself that you think, that you think disqualifies you from following Jesus. Don't forget who God is. Because Jesus tells us. He's the kind of Savior who goes through storms to go to the uncleanest of unclean places and in a word can set you free. Will you come to Him? Will you come to Him broken? Will you come to Him scared? Will you come to Him overwhelmed? Will you come to Him? The good news is you don't have to go very far. 
Because He's already come to us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I am so thankful that you don't just leave us to our own devices. God, it's just unbelievable that, you know, here we are, um, humanity, rebels against you. You make us in your image in the first place. We turn our backs on you. We keep seeking happiness and wholeness and anything but you. We deserve judgment and death, and yet you empty yourself Come to walk with us and dwell with us. Die for us. And you rose. And you rule and you reign. And you are so hospitable. You are the God who reigns with arms open. You are the prodigal God who invites your prodigal children back home even if it shames you even if it doesn't make sense to the world. Lord, help us to receive your open invitation to trust you for forgiveness, for new life. I thank you for your word, even a weird word, that is full of good news for us and the world.